and that was a riding skunk. Man, every time I went to the rifle range, I tried to figure out some way to shoot it. <laughs> really? Woo, okay. Sounds like Wyvon Griffin was a little bit upset at his drill instructor there. You're going to hear more about that in, uh, in this interview. Wyvon is an African-American uh, soldier who helped uh, support the effort in the European Theater of Operations at the Pampa Army Air Base. Stay tuned for some of his experiences supporting the personnel taking on the Nazi juggernaut. This is the Warrior Next Door podcast, where we feature oral histories from veterans whose stories provide an intimate look at world history and how it still affects us today. All of the veterans featured in this podcast were interviewed by us while serving as volunteers for the Folk Life Center at the Library of Congress. Our interviews, almost 200 in total, were conducted with veterans who lived in our cities, our neighborhoods, and often, you guessed it, right next door to us. Welcome to our journey. All right. Well, welcome to uh, our next interview, our next podcast. And uh, the subject today is Mr. Wyvon Griffin, who is an Army cook, as we mentioned, during World War II at the Pampa Army Air Base. Uh, Wyvon was actually one of around 25 veterans that we interviewed in one weekend back in August of 2003. This was roughly, uh, what was what do we think, five months after we first started interviewing yeah, Ish. our first interview was in February, and then in, in August, we find ourselves in Pampa, Texas. For those who don't know where that is, it's in the northern panhandle of Texas. Great if, County, if you, Texas. Great yeah. County. If you can't picture where it is, it's okay. We we worked uh, in that area for a little while, and I can't picture where it is anymore. Um, and so, yeah, we found ourselves uh, doing our first uh, really set of group interviews, like 25, like you said, mm-hmm. as part of Reunion. Yeah, and as far as how this came about, um, you know, this Wyvon's interview here is just one, as I mentioned, of 25. We're going to be featuring these throughout, you know, the the forward, you know, history of this podcast, uh, maybe uh, in conjunction with each other, maybe just based upon the experiences of the, each of the individual um, veterans or anything, but... Uh, you'll be hearing a lot more about the uh, that weekend that we interviewed these guys through all these other other 24 interviews besides Wyvon's today. So the way that this we were trying to think of how we actually got started with this, how we got this reunion, how did we land this project? <laughs> and nearest we can we can figure is I must have contacted someone at the museum. Uh, this was after we got you know our our company had transferred us from the panhandle region of Texas down to Houston. And um, we uh, had visited this museum in the past out of being World War II history buffs. And we met some of the guys there and stuff. They had a really cool B-25 on the on their grounds and everything. And uh, I, I think I reached out to them. They uh, put me in touch with John Triplehorn, who is the president of the museum and their association there. And he really took it and ran with it. Yeah, he did everything. He set up, he, first he, he screened the people who were going to, well, first he planned the reunion and right. he set that up logistically. And then he screened the people who were going to attend for any interest in being interviewed. And then he, uh, helped us set up <laughs> rooms and places to interview people. I think he even reached out to, to local media outlets because we did, uh, an interview on AM radio in the morning, kind of promoting what we were doing and mm-hmm. asking people to come by. And they did. It was full all day. 
And uh, I believe also the uh, local television uh, media came through and and promoted the event as well. So it was yeah. really cool. Yeah, it was actually, I think, out of Am- Amarillo. It was a station out of Amarillo, and it resulted in us getting another interview that weekend. I think that was the Mooney Stall. Yeah, he, he heard it on the radio, and he drove down there. He wasn't part of the Pampa Army Air Base uh, staff for the reunion at all, but he actually uh, fought in the Marines in the Pacific, and he heard that, and he's like, hey, I want to be interviewed. Mm-hmm. And we, we're going to have some really interesting things on Mooney Stall later. But this was six, five to six short months after we started. I think we counted in our spreadsheet. We interviewed, what, four or five people individually before we did this? Mm-hmm. So this was pretty ambitious for us. I remember being really excited and nervous because, you know, we, we were worried about, do we have time? Are we going to have the room set up? What are we going to, you know, are we going to be able to make sure that we can, you know, offer enough time to all the veterans that are there when we've got just this short window to do it? What if no one signs up? What if we make the trip from Houston to Pampa, Texas, and we get one person that wants to get interviewed? I yeah. mean, all these things are unknown for a while. Yeah, yeah. And so the way I remember the way this worked we got a spreadsheet um, from from Mr. Triplehorn, and we both divvied it up, and we each tried calling these guys. And I think our success rate from getting anyone on the phone that would really talk to us was probably like two or three yep. percent. I mean, it was it was really bad. So um, most of the time, they would just say not interested, and they'd hang up, thinking we were salesmen, and we weren't salesmen. We were just trying to do this thing, and so. I'd let Mr. Triplehorn know, like, hey, we're, we aren't getting any traction with these guys. And then he was the one that would went, would go to them and say, you, you're, you're going to be interviewed for the history of the, of the region here. And he's, that he was the one that put the screws to it basically and got him signed up. And he did great. And it, and it reinforces what we said in previous podcasts. Most of the podcasts that we've been able, not podcasts, most of the interviews that we've been able to conduct were done through word of mouth. They mm-hmm. weren't. The, the, the handful of times, Ryan, where you and I tried to cold call people from lists, it almost never worked. No. Even, even back your hometown in Palmyra mm-hmm. with the earlier podcast we just did with Alden Ross, you know, you, you guys tried to cold call some individuals. You had a, a big list and just a fraction of them came in. So, and they knew me and they knew you. Yeah. You're, you're from the area. <laughs> yeah. So it still didn't work. <laughs> and so for there's, there's about four group interviews that we've done in this capacity and every one of them required some sort of connector a or a neighbor or a liaison. Mm-hmm. There was, there, we, we would, it's it just really difficult to be successful when you just put yourself out there and say, Hey, come to me and I'll interview you. That's not, that's not how these guys feel comfortable, uh, sharing their stories. They mm-hmm. want to know that. Uh, someone who they trust uh, will vouch for that individual. Mm-hmm. So it's deeply personal, and it's really an honor that we're able to to get these guys on tape. And the one we're hearing today, Yvonne Griffin is an African-American um, living in Pampa, Texas, uh, which is right near the air base that he served on during World War II. He was 97 years old back in 2003 when he came to visit us. So when you listen to clips from the interview... You're going to hear it from someone who's been on this earth a really long time. So, uh, you know, his, sometimes his, his voice isn't as strong as you'd like, but please be patient and listen. He's got a lot of cool things to say. And the air base, the Pampa Army Airfield, uh, it was only, it only existed for a couple of years. Um, basically it, it was, uh, constructed in June of 1942. And in two short months, in August of 1942, the airbase went from being constructed to being operational, which is just another of the legion of stories that we can and will share about what America was able to do to go from a peacetime to wartime footing. And so he spent most of his time at the Pampa Airfield as a cook supporting 
the troops who would go fight um, in, in World War II. And most of the planes that were being used at the Pampa Army Air Base were multi-engine planes. They were called AT-10s, made by Beechcraft. And they were made out of, I, I didn't know this until I was doing research for this, they were made primarily out of wood. And the reason for that is the uh, Army, when they had specifications for a trainer, they let whoever was going to um, uh, build one know that they didn't want precious war material for bombers and fighters to be applied to the trainer. So they used wood instead of aluminum. And so these AT-10s were uh, two-engine uh, planes that uh, were used to train bomber crews during World War II. Yeah, I'm just going to add to that. You know, they were training primarily B-24 crews, B-24 bombers. And uh, one person who came through this base uh, in during his training was George McGovern, who was a later, uh, you know, politician and, and ran for president and everything. And, um, you know, so he came through this area and um, trained at this base. And, um, and there's not much left of the base today, really. Um, it is, uh, if you look at it on Google Earth, uh, you can still kind of make out some lines here and there. And if you go visit the location, which I've done a few times, there are some interesting looking like foundations that are left. And at one point I had been told that there was a, a some sort of a, a device that they would use for their sextants and everything to kind of get them uh, calibrated and everything. But that I'm not sure if that stuff's it's even still there now. It was some sort of agriculture facility last I saw it. Yeah, so just a few more little tidbits, and we'll get started with some of the clips. Um, uh, it looks like B-25s were also something that, that they trained a lot of pilots on. In fact, they had a B-25 out front. Remember that? That's right. And you could crawl in it. That makes sense. <laughs> now. And, and remember, yeah. you and I, are, our, our older fat asses, could hardly <laughs> believe how tight some of these spaces were, but at any rate... And I wasn't as fat then as I am now. No, so. <laughs> no we were younger and far less fat, and yet we were still too fat relative to the 18-year-old kid or 19-year-old kid that was being stuffed in these things. Well, I remember at the reunion, maybe you're about to say this, um, they actually opened the plane up yep. for, for people to crawl around in. And so, and it was hot. This is August in yeah. Pampa, Texas, the Texas Panhandle, dry, hot. And we crawled up in this thing, and it was probably 110 degrees in there, yeah. easy. And from when you crawl up into it in the bomb bay, essentially, you have to crawl along this tunnel to get to the yeah. cockpit. And it, I was, it was all I could do to get up to that thing. And then we got and sat in the seat and everything, and it was really fascinating to sit in there and stuff. But you talk about a tight fit, and it just goes to show, and we've talked about this before, how back during the war, these these guys were young boys. They were 18, 19 years old. And how many times have you seen footage of like some American plane crash and you hear like the guys in the background saying, get out, man, get out, man. Well, oh my gosh, I had a whole new appreciation for how difficult it would have been for uh, some of these uh, soldiers in these planes to get out of, of, of the tight confines. And think about having all the gear on yeah. and your parachute on you, yeah. trying to crawl through that little tunnel, that little catwalk area to get to the bomb base so you could jump out. Yeah, it was it was crazy. And, it, and at the end of the uh, three years of operation, they ended up shutting um, everything down in, in September of 45 after World War II ended. They um uh, they they had graduated uh, 6,292 cadets, um, and trained 3,500 aircraft mechanics. So uh, big base, middle of the country. They built it there because the weather was beautiful. They actually called it, quote, Eagle's Nest of the High Plains. And this is where you're going to hear uh, Wyvon spend most of his time and his life, by the way. And that's going to be later in the story. So without further ado, let's go ahead and play the first clip about how he got involved in the war effort. Where were you when Pearl Harbor was bombed? 
was in Alexander, Louisiana. And what were you doing? I was asleep. When I woke up, that's all I could hear on the radio. Japanese bomb Pearl Harbor. That's funny. I, I think Wyvon liked to sleep because you'll hear this theme come up later on in this, in this story here and everything. But uh, yeah, as, as a matter of fact, we're going to go ahead and just jump right to the next clip, which uh, briefly takes you through uh, his, um, his, his induction into uh, the armed forces and ultimately to Pampa, Texas. Uh, so we'll go ahead and kick that one off. Well, living in Alexander, Louisiana, in there, uh, it was... Camp Beauregard was there in World War One. Stop it for a second. Yeah, and just for, so people, I want to get this out there right now. I, I'm I'm just twitching because he, the audience needs to know this. He was born in 1906. Mm-hmm. So when World War One ended, he was 12 years old. He would have remembered that. And by the time war broke out, he was 34 years old. Mm-hmm. So I just want to stop that right there. And he talks about Camp Beauregard in World War One, which is going to be repurposed for you know cycling him through his training program. Um, what was really not typical about um, about Wyvon, other than the fact that we don't get a lot of African American veterans <clears throat> that we've been able to interview for a variety of reasons. The other is his age, mm-hmm. right? Most of these people that were getting inducted in the armed forces at this time were uh, 18, 19, 20 years old. They would have had no living memory of World War One, but this dude was old enough that he would have remembered troops from World War One. And now here he is going into the same camp as a 34-year-old grown-ass man mm-hmm. into World War II. So we're, this, this is a bit of foreshadowing. We're going to be talking more about this later. Do you have any experiences from your basic training that you remember that stick out after all this time? Experience? Yeah. Was it, was it difficult? I mean... Well, the- I'm not saying about it, you. <laughs> it, it wake you up so early in the morning. And, uh, yeah, that's uh, the only problem. Before you judge Wyvon for having to get up early for boot camp, which kind of seems like, well, duh, that's what happens, uh, listen to this clip about why his situation was maybe a little more difficult than what others faced. We were in tents. And they had a big gun <laughs> right behind our tent. And early in morning, it was a counter. <laughs> early in morning, they'd shoot that thing off and it just. <laughs> so that's how you started your day? Yeah. <laughs> so, you, 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 in the video, he's talking about when they shoot that thing off, your whole bunk jumps. <laughs> It's priceless watching him t- describe this because he's like throwing his th- th- thumb over the shoulder like there's a cannon like right, right behind our tent. His eyes get all big. It's like right there behind us. And, and all of our beds would shake. So, okay, yeah, he had to get up early. But what he was really saying was how he had to get up early was uh, something that uh, was very memorable to him. So um, the next clip is going to talk about some more um, issues, we'll call them, uh, with uh, uh, basic training. Roman sergeant, he met on color, and that was a rotten skunk. Man, every time I went to the 
rifle's range, I tried to figure out some way to shoot him. <laughs> really? Now, so you're saying that he, he wasn't colored? Huh? The sergeant was or was not colored? Yeah, he's colored. Really? But he was really he just, just mean? Really? That's <laughs> We're hoping he's cheesing here. You know? <laughs> Another one of those friendly fire incidences that we talk about. So uh, let's unpack this a little bit. First off, as we mentioned, he's African-American. And for those who may not know, um, the in World War II, the armed forces, well, the entire United States was segregated. And um, so first thing you're going to hear is that when he goes to boot camp, it's an all-black boot camp. He's going to have a black drill instructor. Uh, and that would be the case for for you know, pretty much all the armed forces during the war. The Marine Corps had a completely separate camp that they would train their black soldiers uh, out of that was completely separate from um, Pendleton or Paris Island. And um, so basically he's not having a good time with his DI. And it's not uncommon to hear stories, at least in combat, of soldiers and non-coms who are so unpopular that they get, quote-unquote, you know, wounded by friendly fire. <laughs> but Wyvon was so pissed about it, he wanted to smoke him on the rifle range. <laughs> okay, at this point, um, uh, uh, Tony, in the interview here, starts asking him, you know, you know, the Army was, uh, was, was segregated then, but at the same time, um, he asked them, you know, what sort of other concerns or, or uh, racism issues did you encounter? Well, I have a question now. The military was segregated when you went in. Is that correct? Correct. Did you experience, um, you know, basically were people racist towards you when you were um, going through the military? Yeah, I was over the group. Well, he tried. <laughs> he tried to get there. Conducted, let me have a birth, a sleep in, because we wouldn't get the train didn't get there over until the next morning. And that guy wouldn't do it. Mm. And so the, this, this guy was in charge of the soldiers, he cussed them out. <laughs> Talk bad about him and everything. But that didn't help him out. Really? And he said, I just can't do it. He said, well, well the, the, the soldiers, when they left California, they was in the boys. And he, he could have let me have one, but well, he could just try and he wouldn't do it. Mm. And so, I told the guy, so I, I said, forget it. Later, that's all right. So I just ran back in the seat and went on sleep. Hmm. And went on. Yeah, so basically what he's saying is there was a troop train with, you know, black and white troops coming in from California, heading east to go to Dallas-Fort Worth. And he was supposed to get on this train in Pampa, Texas, for the trip to Dallas-Fort Worth. And it was going to require an overnight stay, and he wanted a place to sleep. And the conductor, the civilian conductor of the train, wouldn't give him a sleeping berth because he was black. And the officer in charge of the troop transport on the train was arguing, yelling, screaming, talking bad about him. But ultimately, the conductor, quote-unquote, was just doing his job. We've heard that before. Mm-hmm. And uh, and wouldn't let him do it. So this is, this is uh, one of several experiences that... Uh, you know, that Wyvon shared with us about <clears throat> the struggle he had 
as a black man in, in the segregated uh, military United States. Uh, and and we're, we're not doing this gratuitously. This isn't, this isn't, hey, you know, let, let's, let's make sure we feature and showcase all the things that happened to him. Uh, this came out naturally through the course of the interview because it was a big part of his experience. It's, mm-hmm. It was something that he had to deal with during his time in the military. So uh, we're going to move on to a next clip. This is this has to do with him having to get a, a a train ticket to go on leave with his fellow soldiers, and he's going to recount for us um, what he experienced when that happened. I was going to leave, and finally, you know, we was all together. You know, we was all soldiers, you know, white and black. We didn't, we didn't think that. Mm-hmm. You know, you know, we was all in line together. You know, a guy selling tickets. If you want to go anywhere, you better go around. I had to go out of that line around the building and go in another place. Mm-hmm. I said, it's just a shame. So I... I yeah, I run into a lot of problems, but you know, and this is something that you, you can't appreciate unless you watch the video and you see the expressions on Wybon's face when he talked about the birth. You know, trying to get a birth in, uh, issue, you know, uh, on that train, and he couldn't get one. And he he goes from being a smiling guy, and he he looks down to the right, and he gets a sad look on his face every time he relives that racism moment. And the same thing happens right here. So, um, you know, I encourage everybody to go out and watch these videos because it adds another dimension to what you're listening to here. Yeah, and it's it's really, you know, shameful in that here he is with his, you know, military uh, comrades, <clears throat> and he's able to basically be colorblind there, do whatever he wants to do. I mean, they all go down there together to go on the train depot. He doesn't think he has to go into a separate line. I mean, imagine if you were standing in line at an airport waiting to go through TSA and you're waiting there with all your friends from school or whatever, and someone comes up to you and says, oh, you, you, we're not going to let you in this line. you got to go to some other line on the other end of the airport. I mean, that would be humiliating. Mm-hmm. And yeah. That's, that, that's why at the end he said it was sad. Yeah, and like he, was, like he has said, he's like, you know, we didn't think anything of it. We've been together all the time, all the, his, his fellow soldiers, white soldiers and, him, and black soldiers. They were, seg- they, were, they were not segregated in, you know, in, as far as his experience in the army. Yeah. You know? His experience in Pampa, even though the armed forces were segregated, once they went into their MOS, the things that they were going to do, uh, according to, uh, Wyvon, uh, he didn't experience the, the segregation and the Jim Crow laws like he did in civilian life. And they sort of stuck together. They didn't care what color you were. And they said, soldier in trouble. So you didn't have you didn't experience a lot of racism with your fellow soldiers. Huh? So you didn't experience a lot of racism between the fellow soldiers? No. It was typically the town people? It is, that's all. Just the town people. And the soldiers were terrible. That's good. <laughs> yeah. Could you explain what you just saw? Yeah. And this is another thing that comes across in the video only. Um, when he says that they stuck together um, and as as a group, 
white and black together. Anytime that the, the, the townsfolk or anyone, uh, sheriffs, policemen, whatever, that were harassing these guys, they got confronted by the other white guys and, and the other guys in the military. And um, he got a really big look of smile and just feeling really good about that whenever he just described that there. Yeah, I mean, so. he, I, I would argue that emotional yeah, is, definitely. Is, is what I saw. Mm-hmm. Like, kind of like, you know, he remembered that it, it didn't have to be like that. So, um, yeah, it's, I didn't realize that. I knew that there was, there was segregation. Um, I was actually positively surprised at the fact that he had such a close relationship with the people in the armed forces and that the problems that he faced basically had to do when he was back home or, or on leave. Um, so, uh, the next clip, Ryan, uh, is this the one about the kitchen? Yes. So <clears throat> the next clip that we're going to play is just an anecdote from some of his experiences when he was on the base, uh, as a cook in Pampa. Every day at noon when I was on, see, I was on day and off a day. And every day when I was on, they come in there for lunch, they'd come back there where I was, you know. He's talking about the wax, the the, the female auxiliary. Miss Sonny didn't like that at all. Really? <laughs> he, he was from Georgia. Ah. And his name was Mays, you know. And then when I knew he didn't like this, see him talking to me, you know, baby. And he put a sign up there, you know, and nobody at the back there but the help, the kitchen help. So he was upset enough where he put a sign up to keep the women from talking to you back yeah. there? Yeah. And one one who acted well, she was big, heavy-sucked lady, you know. She walked up and read that, and she said, who put that up there? Maze? I say, yeah. So <laughs> 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 And he didn't put man nothing up there. That's right. She gonna whoop on him. <laughs> That's awesome. The, the women want to hang out with Wyvon. They want to go in the kitchen and talk to him. He's a good cook. He's a great dude. Uh, for those who haven't seen the video, you know, uh, uh, white, snow white hair, glasses, you know, real, real kind of chill looking guy. So they, they want to hang out with him. And this, this Sergeant Mays, I guess, from Georgia, as he points out, doesn't like it, puts his sign up. And some big powerful whack goes in there and rips the sign down. I like what he says at the end. It's like, Mays never put the sign back up. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Oh man, there is uh, maybe there is karma in this world. Uh, so, what's the next clip we have on tap, Ryan? So, uh, this this next part is where he's actually talking about um, some of the harassment that happened in the town where the base was located. Okay. Well, real, but they had some old old people in the sheriff's department. He was oh one. So this would have been the what Pampa Sheriff Department? Huh? Would he harass yeah. you? Oh, if he, if he had a chance, those MPs were on them, though. They had to go through the MPs to get over to Sawyer. And the MPs in town. I, I, I know one, one night, 
So the MPs would actually protect him yeah. from the sheriff who was after him. Yeah. Yeah, so what just happened there, um, he talks about how there was a sheriff and the deputies in town that were apparently trailing or chasing this this other colored soldier back to the base. Who, who was in a nice car. Who was in a nice car, right. And so as the guy turned, apparently someone had phoned ahead and let the MPs know what was going on, that this guy was being chased by the police through no fault of his own, apparently. And as he turned off the payment and went through the gate, the MPs closed the gate right behind him and said they would not let the police in after him. I was really moved by this uh, story when I heard it uh, back in 2003. In fact, it's probably the story that I remember the most out of the entire interview. Mm-hmm. The fact that, um, <clears throat> first off, you hear about these stories of this happening to uh, black people in the Deep South uh, before and after the war. Uh, just being harassed because they're uppity or driving a nice car or not recognizing the community. Well, that's exactly what happened here. But this time they ran into the arms of the federal government, of all things, that helped you know protect their own soldiers, regardless of the color of their skin. So I know there's always a lot going on in the United States when it comes to race relations. I know this is a really touchy topic for a lot of people. But when I heard this story, I, it gave me hope that, you know, we can, you know, continue to be on a path where the sort of things that Wyvon used to experience, you know, become less and less and less common. Uh, so I thought that was really cool to see how the federal government stepped in and shut the doors on the sheriff trying to get in and basically told him to get the hell out of there. To the base, Wichita Falls, Texas, that's where I received my discharge. In Wichita Falls, Texas. And then I had to go back to Louisiana and report to the local board. And after I reported to the local board, I came back to Pampa and I waiting for my mustard out check. But the third day after I arrived back to Pampa, I went to work for the city of Pampa. Sanitation problem. So that's why I'm still here. (laughs) (laughs) 
So all that being said about the issues he had in Pampa with the sheriff and, and whatnot, he comes back to Pampa and gets yeah. a job. That's mind-blowing to me in a, in a way. you know. <laughs> he stays his whole life. I mean, to the point where, you know, when they had this Pampa Army Air Base reunion, he, he just drove up in his car. And they're mm-hmm. like, oh, Wyvon's here, you know, because, you know, they recognize his car from in town. Uh, it was really important for the people in the town when we were there, John Triblehorn and others, that we interviewed Wyvon. They wanted to make sure that we did. Um, it turns out that he's kind of left a mark on the community. We found newspaper articles that were archived from 1970 that featured, you know, Wyvon and some of the work that he did. So, uh, all that being said, all the things that went on, Wyvon goes back to get his muster check means, you know, the money that was left over when he mustered out of the military, the war's over for him now. And, uh, he ends up staying there and, um, uh, for the rest of his life. And, uh, so now we're going to talk a little bit about his, you know, post-war, experiences a little bit in Pampa, Texas. When I first came in, after I got out of service here, when I went to work for the city, and uh, I was working for the sanitation department. When I was working with two guys, two, uh, one of them was helping me dump the barrel, and the other was driving. They were brother-in-law, and they, they were real nice guys, you know. And 12 wheels working at night, so they asked me every night, Griff, what are, you gonna what are we going to eat at night? I said, don't make me no difference, man, what are we eat at? He said, well, Driver, he said, Well, I've been thinking about it. we go sit in such a place. I said, Just since I get something to eat. I said, Now, when we drive up there, and they said they can't feed me, mm-hmm. he said, If they can't feed you, they can't feed me. Mm-hmm. I said, Okay, let's go. And so that's, that's where we went. Wow, that's, that's pretty. Heartwarming, I think, you know, the way that they, they, they became friends, you know, and racism, you know, wasn't an issue with those guys. And you're starting to see the American people push back after World War II. Uh, how embarrassing was it that we were, you know, fighting the uh, Aryan Nazi nation who believed in racial purity, and yet we were, had segregated armed forces and our, our society was segregated back home. So I want to just go on a little bit of a, a tangent here about that. Um, <clears throat> when the war started in 1940, the U.S. population was about 131 million. And these statistics come from uh, ourdocuments.gov. Uh, it's about Executive Order 9981, which was the desegregation of the armed forces. And so 1940, we had 131 million people, and about 12.6 million were African American. That's about 10% of the total, which is uh, pretty close to what it is today. And as it would be expected, during World War II, the Army had become the nation's largest employer of minorities. And uh, of the 2.5 million African-American males who registered for the draft back in uh, through December 31st of 45, more than 1 million were inducted in the armed forces, which is about 11% of all registrants. So uh, black people, African-Americans during the war participated uh, in... Um, the same proportion that they were of our population. So uh, there was there was no 
discriminating factor in terms of between having a white person or a black person go to war. They both felt zeal to join the war effort and did it and participated equally. But some of the issues that we were having at home, um, you know, at the same time that that was going on, we still had this war industry that needed to be supported as well. And we needed every person we could get. You always hear about Rosie the Riveter, right? About bringing women into the armed forces and to the military to help us out. Well, it turns out that, and I didn't know this, but President Roosevelt uh, started getting complaints about discrimination against African-Americans for different jobs for the defense industry. And he, he saw that as, uh, you know, that, that wasn't acceptable. We need every person we could get. So he signed in June 1941, FDR, Executive Order 8802, directing that blacks be accepted into job training programs, defense plants, uh, forbidden discrimination by defense contractors. And it was it established a new commission, which FDR was notorious uh, for <laughs> having all these commissions, called FEPC, the Fair Employment Practices Commission. And uh, this was kind of like in, uh, an early version of like a, a civil liberties union um, where, you know, people were... Uh, government agencies were overseeing the fairness in, in hiring workplace, workplaces and practices. But they had to do this in World War II because we had to make, make bombs. We, we had to be colorblind. We couldn't care if someone wore pants or a skirt. Now, the sad thing is, is when the war ended, they abolished this commission. The, the Southern uh, senators in particular uh, wanted it abolished, and they did. And it really frustrated Harry Truman, who took over. So what he did is he appointed the first uh, Civil Rights Commission. And he said, well, if I can't act to the Congress, I'll do it through executive orders. Does that sound familiar? Well, it's old <laughs> as new sure. again, right? This, is, this yeah. is what happens politically. And he signed an executive order 9981 that stated, quote, there shall be equality of treatment and opportunity for all persons in the armed forces without regard to race, color, religion, or national origin, end quote. Why am I saying all this? You heard about the safe haven that um, Wyvon had with the federal government, with the military during World War II. You just heard a story about, you know, white people, co-workers not tolerating these Jim Crow laws down there. Things were changing and for the better. And for the first time, the federal government was putting teeth behind these anti-discriminatory policies that would ultimately lead to the Civil Rights Act in the 60s, mm-hmm. uh, and the continued push for equality that we see today. It's amazing that it still took 20 years. And it's amazing to me that the first branch of the government that was fully integrated by 1951 was the armed forces, mm-hmm. right? The ones that were so heavily uh, segregated during the war. And there's many movies about the Tuskegee Airmen and, you know, black tank corps yeah. uh, that, 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 that weren't treated properly. And yet that was the one that led the way. You would think it would be some other organization, um, so, uh, I just wanted to add that, um, at the end of the day, a lot of the struggles that black soldiers like Wyvon had, um, weren't in vain that they ultimately, uh, uh, created the conditions for, uh, the, the increased equality that we see today. Or do you think your service during World War II, you know, being in the military, do you think that affected your life later on? Do you think it helped you in any way? I love it, yeah, it helped me a whole lot. Yeah, I, I was, like I said, all the time, I'd get, I didn't want to go in the service, but 
but I wouldn't take for the experience, and I, I had it. Yes, sir. It's a good, it was good for me. And I, I'm gonna, of course, I didn't get a chance to go over, over there, but what I did over here, I appreciate. You know, I'm glad I was able to help that much. Yeah, I mean, we mentioned this earlier before. Um, he uh, inducted the armed services, was brought in, drafted, trained as a cook. Uh, he was 34 years old and he got pulled in, which was a huge anomaly. Of course, he said what a lot of GIs said when he came home. Hey, <laughs> I didn't want to go to war. I didn't want to be drafted, but they did. And at the end of it, he feels like it's something that he's uh, very proud of and he should be. Uh, he was part of the muscle and the machine that, uh, w uh, that, that, that fed and equipped our soldiers in ways that no other army was able to do as quickly as we were able to do. Mm -hmm. And so as we go forward to this podcast, this isn't, again, the Warrior Next Door concept. Our podcast isn't about featuring, you know, your General Pattons or the Audi Murphys, all these people that, you know, are really well-renowned. We think that this story is just as compelling as the war hero stories you might read about in a Bradley book. Mm -hmm. And that's what this podcast is about. These are people we interviewed randomly. We weren't selecting people to interview. They were people that just came to us through word of mouth. And what I hope that the audience got today when they listen to this is that everyone had a story, everyone had a role in the war effort, and it's, it's all compelling and important for us to, to learn and understand. Well, thanks for joining us. If you like what you hear, please like us at the Warrior Next Door podcast Facebook page. All of our interviews are archived at the Veterans History Project Library of Congress and also with our partner at Grand Valley State University in Allendale, Michigan. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next time.